Hi, just a heads up here. You are about to listen to an episode that's part of a series you'll be hearing from me covering various aspects of the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. So the subject matter is graphic, it's sensitive, and it's very emotional. Please make sure that the listening audience around you is appropriate if needed. Additionally, I wanted to let you guys know that I have done my best to bring episodes that will shed light on all aspects of this conversation. So you'll hear from a physician who specializes in family planning and abortion care. You will hear the personal story of a woman who is faced with an unimaginable choice. You'll also hear from a pastor and author um, who will speak about the biblical aspects of this conversation. All of these conversations, they are all equally important, and I hope will serve as tools to help you have a more comprehensive and informed discussion. I'm not asking you to agree with anything you hear in any of these episodes, but rather I am asking you to listen with an open mind and an open heart. You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. back to the Dabbleco podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And today I'm really thrilled. I've got Dr. Amy Adante, who's a board certified OBGYN in Chicago. And she actually is an expert in family planning. She did a fellowship kind of beyond for two years beyond the the standard of residency, which is um, four years for OBGYNs. Um, And she is affiliated with Physicians for Reproductive Health. So if there's really, if there's an expert in answering the questions that you guys um, put in the question box a couple of weeks ago, just about the implications in, in medical care. Um, if Roe v. Wade is, is overturned, it would be her. So thank you, truly, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come on and, and answer questions. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So like I said in the little intro, guys, this is going to be a three-part series, and I'm trying really, really hard to give as unbiased information as I can. And so Today, what we're going to talk about is truly just from a medical standpoint, how could the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade affect women, um, particularly in very, very, very um, conservative states where the laws are likely to be significantly more restrictive. Um, And so... I just want to start, I think I'm just going to start with the questions. Um, Dr. Dante, if that's okay with you, unless you have kind of an intro you want to, anything you want to say, I'll just start with questions. What do you think? Let's dive right in. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. So I think that, you know, one question I saw over and over that really seems to be concerning to a lot of women is, are there potential implications on miscarriage care and uh, DNC, and how, how does how would really restrictive laws potentially affect the care of those who are having miscarriages? If if it would at all, it might not at all. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's definitely a concern that 
you know, I think in addition to your listeners, a lot of um, reproductive health providers across the country share the same concern. Um, the reality is, is that in the year 2022, um, the medications, the procedures that we use for miscarriage management are the same medications and procedures that we use for abortion care. Mm-hmm. Um, so medication abortion and the medical management of miscarriage care, uh, standard of care in 2022 is to use the same exact regimen. So this is a combination of two medications. The -hmm. first medication is um, called mifepristone. So for a um, medication abortion, this actually stops the the hormones from going to the pregnancy. For miscarriage care, this medication kind of helps the uterus get ready to be a little bit more responsive to the second medication we use, which is called mesoprostol. Mesoprostol is a medication that causes cramping and causes bleeding, and it's what causes the pregnancy to pass and expel. And it causes what kind of feels like a very heavy period to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the actual, you know, process between the two are, are the same. Now, mesoprostol is pretty easy to obtain. Um, most pharmacies carry it. It's not a particularly highly regulated drug. But mifepristone, on the other hand, um, is what a lot of people know as the, quote, abortion pill. And this is a medication that has been safely used in this country since the early 2000s, but it really didn't start to play a role in miscarriage care until the year 2018 when a large study demonstrated that using this medication in miscarriage care actually increased the um, odds of uh, medical management successfully you know, managing the miscarriage. And so mifepristone is a very, very highly regulated drug in this country. Um, It is not stocked in very many pharmacies. It is closely um, monitored subject to what we call the REMS program, which is a, a program through the FDA. And so a lot of states right now um, are passing laws that, you know, ban mifepristone. And so if a a state bans mifepristone, then patients that choose medical management for their miscarriage are actually not going to be able to get the combination of drugs that are the most effective. They're only going to be able to obtain the mesoprostol alone. So what happens, how does that affect them? Then do they not fully expel the miscarriage contents or what, what, how does that work? What happens then? So mesoprostol alone is um, a management option for miscarriage, but the uh, rates of, you know, successfully managing it, meaning complete expulsion of all the pregnancy tissue is higher when it's taken with the mifepristone. So essentially if mifepristone isn't available your, you know, risk of either needing additional medications or possibly even a procedure go up because you're not getting the most effective medical regimen. And what happens when you don't get all of that out? Just for people who don't know, um, you know, if you don't get all of the, essentially the, the tissue out from a miscarriage, what does, what's, what happens after that? So in general, um, you know, 
women can have, you know, more prolonged bleeding. Sometimes they can develop infections. And we know mm-hmm. that you need to have complete resolution of, of a miscarriage before, you know, you're able to consider getting pregnant again, if that's what you're desiring. So it just leads to just potentially infection, kind of prolonging the whole traumatic emotional experience, I would assume, um, and then could make it more difficult to get pregnant in the future? Um, not necessarily more difficult to get pregnant in the future, but, um, all all the pregnancy tissue needs to be out of the uterus before Uh you can get pregnant again. So it doesn't necessarily cause any fertility issues, but, um, you know, a lot of times when patients experience a miscarriage, sometimes they're very eager to get pregnant again. Right. Uh, and if they haven't completely passed all the pregnancy tissue, that can certainly lead to delays. And then, like I said, there will be a subset of patients that, you know, if the medical management fails, they'll end up needing the procedure, which you kind of alluded to, which is a, a dilation and curatage or a DNC. And that's a, I mean, it's a surgical procedure. What would you call that? Like a minor surgery kind of a, I mean, how would you categorize that? Yeah, so I actually try to avoid the word surgery when I talk about a DNC um, because I think a lot of times people think of surgery as like things being cut. Uh-huh. And the reality is, is a, a DNC, or sometimes you'll also hear it called an MVA, which stands for manual vacuum aspiration. Um, there's mm-hmm. no cutting involved. There are no sharp instruments involved. Um, in a DNC, we use instruments to gently open the cervix, and then we use um, suction uh, to, to remove the pregnancy tissue. And so there's really, there, there's no cutting. It's actually a procedure that can be done very safely in an office mm-hmm. setting. Um, mm-hmm. it doesn't require a trip to the operating room, although some patients do choose to have it done in an operating room, but it is a very safe, um, usually pretty quick procedure that can be done in your regular OBGYN office if, if your provider has the, the supplies and the setup to do so. So do you have concern that in really conservative or, or more restrictive states that that medication will be even more difficult to obtain or what, what's the concern there for you guys right now? Yeah, I, we definitely have concerns that, you know, mifepristone is going to be unavailable to patients who need it. And then, you know, the other concern is, you know, some pharmacists, there's already been cases of this, of pharmacists refusing to dispense mesoprostol because even for miscarriage care, because they are, you know, concerned that they, they might be, you know, giving it to someone who's in fact using it for an abortion. And this is where it gets really tricky. Cause like I said, the, the medications, the procedures for, uh, an abortion versus a miscarriage, they're identical. Yeah. And so when you kind of restrict those medications and kind of, you know, in some ways make healthcare providers afraid of using them because of potential legal consequences, it really limits options for patients. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's already, like you said, highly regulated. Um, so that's really interesting. Okay. And, and kind of going back to the, 
you know, you called one the abortion pill, which is actually what I feel like plan B is kind of referred to, like the word on the street name is plan B is the abortion pill. But can you explain the difference between those? Because they are totally different. Um, and I know, you know, if you are a person that is trying to avoid um, more abortions, I would think that you would want more access to plan B, but may not understand what plan B is versus the actual medication for a, a, a true abortion. Can you explain the difference between those two? Yeah. So I just want to first and foremost say that plan B is not an abortion pill. So plan B will not interrupt an existing pregnancy. Um, the mm-hmm. purpose of plan B is what we call emergency contraception. So if you either weren't using a form of contraception at the time that you had sex or the method that you were using failed, for example, like if your condom broke, there is this category of medication that we call emergency contraception. And so Mm -hmm. um, there's two different pills um, that can both be used for emergency contraception, one of them being Plan B, which is actually made of um, one of the same hormones that's used in some birth control pills called levonorgestrel. Um, and again, that will not disrupt an existing pregnancy. The, the point of plan B is to prevent a pregnancy from occurring. And then there's another medication that kind of fun, falls under that same category um, of emergency contraception called Ulipristal, um, or Ella is the, the trade name. And again, this is not an abortion pill either. Um, the point of these two medications is to prevent you from getting pregnant if, if you have either no contraception on board at the time that you have sex or if your method fails. So the only pill that we consider um, abortion pills, meaning pills that will end an existing pregnancy, are those two medications we talked about in the beginning, mifepristone and mesoprostol. But Plan B and Ella, neither one of those will disrupt an existing pregnancy. Because it, it they, they prevent the egg from leaving and going down the path that it needs to go to become a a fertilized egg, correct? So Plan B and Ulipristal um, primarily work by delaying ovulation. So ovulation is when the ovary releases the egg. Um, And so by delaying ovulation beyond the time period we would expect sperm to be able to live in the reproductive tract, it decreases the chance of pregnancy occurring. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think that's just something that... um a lot of people don't don't understand it's it's actually not an abortion and potentially uh, do you feel well do you feel like access to that will in in any way be restricted or that sh- seems like it wouldn't be but I, I mean you never know yeah i mean i think the the trouble is a lot of people that are passing these restrictions have a poor understanding of how these medications work and mm-hmm. kind of try to lump them all together um, under the same category when really they work differently, they serve different purposes. Yeah, hopefully that it won't happen. I was watching someone the other day, it was a legislator, I think in Mississippi or somewhere talking, they were talking about ectopic pregnancies and he literally said, we don't have the proper hospital equipment to know if someone's pregnancy is ectopic or not. And it was like, whoa, sir, that's, that's not how it it was just, just very scary that someone so uneducated on that specific topic was (laughs) making up laws. 
in my experience, the people that are, are writing and passing these laws have a, a very poor understanding of the, the biology and the medicine behind, you know, what I do every day as an OBGYN. Yeah. Yeah. And the next question was about ectopic pregnancies. And I, and I saw something today, somebody sent me a, a video um, who, you know, knew I was going to be kind of talking about this coming up. And this was not a physician speaking on this, but it was someone saying, um, hey, you know, this is the the medical side of this is being used to, to scare you into um, thinking that the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a bad thing and, you know, everything will still be handled the same way and medical emergencies and all of that will still be handled the same way. Um, but I I don't know that that's true in every state. It may be true for some states, um, but it may be wildly different. You know, I'm in Tennessee. I was in South Carolina, and I would imagine the laws here will be very different from places, um, you know, like New York, California, even, I mean, Illinois, wherever. But do you feel like there are any situations where the laws will be so restricted? Well, so first of all, Let's, what, what is an ectopic pregnancy? So let's just kind of go back to the beginning of that. What, what is an ectopic pregnancy? How are those typically handled and, and how do they affect women? So to understand an ectopic pregnancy, we have to kind of understand the, the basics of how a normal pregnancy occurs. So the ovary releases an egg. And that egg is uh, picked up by the fallopian tube. It'll travel in the fallopian tube. And then the sperm meets the egg in the fallopian tube. And that's where fertilization occurs. Uh, the fertilized egg will then travel the rest of the way down the fallopian tube. And a normal pregnancy will implant on the inside of the uterus and continue mm -hmm. to grow there. An ectopic pregnancy is any pregnancy that is growing, you know, not in the normal place inside the uterus. So most commonly this occurs in the fallopian tube. The vast majority of ectopic pregnancies um, implant in a fallopian tube, but ectopic pregnancies can actually implant other places. They can implant very rarely on the ovary. They can implant um, in the cervix. They can implant in the, the wrong part of the uterus. So we really kind of consider an ectopic pregnancy, any pregnancy that is implanted outside of the, the normal intrauterine location. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the time this is a diagnosis that's made by ultrasound, um, usually in the first trimester. So we can very clearly with ultrasound these days, you know, see the uterus, see um, if there's something that looks like it's in the fallopian tube, we can evaluate the ovaries all with, with an ultrasound. And um, ectopic pregnancies are an emergency and um, they need to be treated as such. But I think um, in my experience talking to some providers in Texas, um, the way some of these abortion laws are written is the language is very vague. Mm -hmm. Um because again, it's, it's being written by non-medical professionals. And so I think there is maybe some room for interpretation. And I think, you know, when you're talking about legal consequences that include, you know, fines, criminal charges, loss of license, I think many providers kind of err on the side of caution, um, 
you know, in, in not wanting to do something that could potentially be construed as illegal where they're practicing. But ectopic pregnancies, like I said, they can be life-threatening. Um, there's, you know, a couple different ways that they, they can be managed. But I think this check kind of highlights why, you know, laws that regulate reproductive health care can have really unintended consequences because, like I said, the people that are are writing these laws are not the people in our exam rooms, in our operating rooms that are taking care of patients. Well, and and like you said, they're in a, a medical emergency. And so let's say, you know, Texas is a very large state. So what if you're in one part of even, not even the country, but the state and if the laws are vague or confusing or putting, you know, providers in a difficult situation and, and someone comes in kind of like the example of the pharmacist, not wanting to, to fill the, the prescription. Let's say you get a provider who's not willing to perform whatever service that this person, this woman needs to, to help with her ectopic pregnancy. And I mean, then what does she do? How far does she have to go? How does she find a provider that will care for her while also being in the middle of a medical emergency that's potentially life-threatening? All pregnancy-related care is time-sensitive, but I would say the management of ectopic pregnancies are particularly Um, Mm time-sensitive. Ectopic pregnancies can rupture and cause really life-threatening bleeding. Um, Some of the, the sickest patients that I've ever cared for in my career have been young women who have come into the emergency room with ruptured ectopic pregnancies. Um, and you know, luckily ectopic pregnancies are, are rare, Mm -hmm. um, in kind of the general scheme of all pregnancies, but you know, certainly any delays in care can really put a patient's life at risk. So would you put, someone asked about a molar pregnancy and I'm, I'm wondering if we, you would kind of put those, not that that's an emergency, but kind of in the same category as sort of the ectopic or even miscarriage land. Can you, can you explain what a molar pregnancy is and how potentially restricting laws might affect care for that? Yeah. Molar pregnancies are, I think something that even confuse a lot of OBGYNs because they're just (laughs) kind of a very weird pregnancy phenomenon. So basically what a molar pregnancy is, it's, it's abnormally growing, pregnancy tissue in, in the uterus. Um, it's usually genetically abnormal tissue. And the thing that's really confusing about a mole is that sometimes there are, you know, fetal parts or the present of a fetus. Sometimes there isn't. Um, and so if there was the presence of a fetus, it, it kind of can gray the lines. Um, so I, for example, took care of a patient who, had a molar pregnancy and um, actually had a, a concurrent fetus. And so molar pregnancies have to be treated with um, a DNC procedure because that tissue, if left untreated over time, can actually turn into a form of cancer um, called gestational trophoblastic disease. And so for this particular patient where I was working at the time, because there was a concurrent fetus that had cardiac activity, she was kind of subject to the, the rules and regulations of abortion in that, in that, um, in that state. And so, you know, like I said, molar pregnancies are 
also luckily like ectopic pregnancies, very rare, but can also be life-threatening and need time-sensitive care. And so I, I think, you know, all these points you're hitting just highlight how shades of gray the field of OBGYN can be and these laws, you know, want to make it black and white, but it's just, it's not. Every patient's situation is different. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorne. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash u slash dabbleco and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you'll just be prompted to confirm dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorne.com slash u like the letter u slash dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's, it's all very difficult, honestly. And I've got another question. I'm going to lump these two questions together actually, because they, they kind of go together. And this is a really, really difficult question, um, that I, I'm interested to hear kind of what the answer would be. But, um, so one person asked, why would abortion ever be considered if, when a a fetus or a pregnancy might be considered viable by weeks, like let's say it's, it's a 24, a 24 weeks gestation. Um, and that there was another question that said kind of why, why can't these, some of these women just give birth? Um, so that's real. there's kind of two things I wanted to ask about that, but first I would ask, yeah. Okay. Why would, what would medically warrant a potential abortion at that late of a stage in the pregnancy? So there's many reasons why people need to access um, abortion later in their pregnancies. Um, Uh The first thing I'll say is I think a lot of people like to think of viability as a number. Um, And a lot of people think of that number as 20 week, 24 weeks, a normal pregnancy is, is 40 weeks. But, um, I always say viability is not a number. There are some pregnancies that will never be considered viable. So, you know, an ectopic pregnancy will never be viable. Um, Mm -hmm. There are pregnancies with, you know, fetal conditions that are incompatible with life that, you know, some people would say that that's not a viable pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of like to categorize this into, you know, medical reasons, as you've asked. And then, you know, the other thing you have to consider is in, you know, medically, quote, normal pregnancies, um, a lot of people who are seeking abortions have a lot of delays in their care, um, mostly created by abortion restrictions. So, you know, we're seeing an increased number of patients having to travel out of their home state, out of their communities. um, And, you know, that causes delays in time. Um, for some people, they need more time to gather the resources that they need to be able to travel for their procedure. They might mm-hmm. need to arrange for childcare. You know, you got to remember over half of patients who are seeking an abortion are already parents. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, we also have some patients that don't recognize their pregnancy until later in pregnancy. And so there's, there's a lot of reasons why patients might be seeking an abortion later in pregnancy. Um, but probably the thing we hear about most of abortions occurring later in pregnancy is, you know, you got to remember in a normal pregnancy, most people will go for their anatomy scan around the 20 week mark. And a lot of people think of this as, oh, this is, you know, the ultrasound where I get to find out the, the sex, you know, of the fetus. But really the purpose of that ultrasound is to look at all those fetal structures and, um, you know, make sure that as I tell patients, all the right parts are in all the right places. And so at 20 weeks, that's when a lot of patients are finding out that they have, you know, a fetal diagnosis that is either incompatible with life or extremely life limiting. Um, Sometimes, you know, there'll be an ultrasound finding that needs further follow-up, might need genetic testing, might need additional ultrasounds to Mm -hmm. really confirm the diagnosis. And, you know, you're talking about patients with you know, desired pregnancies who are trying to get as much information as they can about what is now their medically complicated pregnancy before they make, you know, it's oftentimes a very difficult decision. And so sometimes getting all the information they need to make a decision takes time. And then, you know, being able to sit down and figure out once they have all that information, what is the best choice for them is the best choice to continue the pregnancy or to end the pregnancy. And, you know, that's a deeply personal decision. And at the end of the day, we have to trust people to know their needs and their lives. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people want to paint this picture that, you know, people wake up well into their pregnancy and just decide they don't want to be pregnant anymore. Right. In my experience, that's, that's not the case. It's like I said, it's people who either have, you know, a medical complication that develops during their pregnancy, either for the patient themselves or for the fetus or their patients who have experienced significant delays in, in seeking care or obtaining their care, I should say. I mean, I could think of, you know, what if the mother was diagnosed with, you know, really aggressive cancer or something, you know, at late, you know, 20 weeks gestation or something? I don't know. I'm just trying to think of examples that might be helpful for people to understand I, I mean, how I've, you could even consider I've taken that. care of patients like that. Yeah. I, I took care of a patient with, you know, a highly desired pregnancy after um, doing IVF, who was diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of cancer at, at 20 weeks and, you know, Mm. delaying the treatment of her cancer, you know, four weeks, let's say even till delivery would be, you know, possible for, for possible fetal survival that that was going to significantly impact her, her chance of survival and the treatment that, she needed was, was not safe for the pregnancy. And so, you know, in my experience, taking care of patients who have abortions later in pregnancy, um, they, they've experienced something difficult, whether it be the barriers that they needed to overcome to access the abortion that they may have wanted, you know, from the day they found out they were pregnant, or they've had something really tragic happen during their desired pregnancy. Yeah. Tragic, I think is a really the only way to say it. Um, and, and so there were a couple of questions kind of that I think would go kind of along with that. One, one person asked, and I I didn't really know how to, 
one person asked, you know, is there such thing as in utero palliative care? Like if we were say we're talking about these um, babies that are diagnosed with just these incompatible with life fetal, you know, fetal anomalies. And I, I think people struggle with the humanity of, you know, and I, then one of the next questions is going to be, you know, how are those actually performed or is that an option or, or kind of what happens there? I think, I think people want to know, and there's a lot of misinformation about what happens in that situation. Sure. Um, so I am not aware of in utero palliative care, usually, Mm -hmm. you know, palliative care, um, is reserved for, for after delivery, but um, mm-hmm. I said, I, that is not anything I have ever come across. Um, and I, I, I think the thing that I'd like to emphasize is, you know, a lot of patients who are having abortions later in pregnancy, particularly for fetal diagnoses, they are making these decisions out of a place of love. They are making these decisions to, in their mind, minimize the, the pain and suffering that that fetus might experience. And so, um, you know, abortion later in pregnancy, it kind of depends on, you know, when we're talking about, um, a lot of times, uh, these abortions are done via inductions of labor, Mm -hmm. um, similar to the way, you know, you would induce labor for, you know, someone that was not having an abortion, um, and so a lot of the other alternative is what's called a DNE or a dilation and evacuation procedure. Mm-hmm. And what that involves is opening the cervix over the course of several days and then um, using suction and, and other instruments to then remove the pregnancy. So those are the, the two ways that abortions later in pregnancy um, are usually done. If someone does choose an induction, um, sometimes they will get an injection to the baby to cause the the heartbeat to stop before Mm -hmm. the actual delivery. But um, I think, you know, people want to, like you said, invoke these really horrible images of what abortion later in pregnancy looks like. But in my experience, you know, parents that are making the decision to have an abortion later in pregnancy are are doing it out of a place of compassion and love and wanting to minimize the suffering. Yeah, I I can imagine. I think there's a lot of misinformation around that and that gets, it gets asked often. And it's, first of all, that's, it's so rare. I don't even, I don't know if you know the percentage of, of, I guess that's what you would call a late term abortion, but it's very rare. And like you said, yeah, we, we try not to use that terminology. Um, late, late term abortion has no medical meaning. Um, like I said, we prefer to use the terminology abortion later in pregnancy. And usually that's what people are thinking of is abortions that are occurring after the first trimester. But again, over 90% of abortions in this country happen in the first trimester. And like you said, it's, it's a, not like these are people who are waking up six months pregnant and just deciding I don't want to do this anymore. It's, it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. Um, gosh. Okay. So last question, I think this is sort of an interesting 
interesting question and, and also gives people a lot to think about. So, you know, most, I think, I don't want to speak for people, but my understanding is that, um, you know, most pro-life, um, groups consider the insemination of sperm and, and egg and formation of an embryo. That is when, when life begins, um, and this is not a debate about whether, you know, that's true or not, or what your belief is. Um, but my question is, are there implications potentially where this has the potential to impact IVF? Um, because, you know, that's what IVF is, is creating, creating these, um, you know, essentially embryos. So if you've been following Dabbleco and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. So I think this is a really important question and one that is particularly personal to me. So I actually used in vitro fertilization to um, start my family. So um, this is certainly, I think, on the minds and definitely a large fear for a lot of families that um, need to use IVF to start or grow their families. Um, I, I think it's important to understand how we define um, what is a pregnancy, uh, a normal pregnancy, like when when does pregnancy begin? And, and uh, the American College of OBGYN defines pregnancy at the time of implantation, not at the time of fertilization. So just mm -hmm. kind of from a biology standpoint, I think that's um, important to understand. But um Certainly, I think there's a lot of concerns that, you know, IVF or, or other infertility-related services could potentially be um, limited with with the loss of Roe because, as you said, some people do consider um, fertilization, you know, they, they consider that um, – in some places they consider that a unique person, um, not in law anywhere that I'm aware of yet, but, you know, kind of from a philosophical standpoint. And so certainly I think, you know, this just kind of shows that, you know, pregnancy care is very intersectional from infertility to abortion, that there is a lot of overlap and why we really need to be leaving these decisions to doctors and their patients and, and not politicians. But certainly, you know, there's concern that, um, 
of personhood, which is the terminology that I see a lot of legislatures using is granted to a fertilized egg, then that can certainly have consequences on, on IVF in particular, where, you know, a lot of times extra embryos are made and either frozen or, you know, if they're not used in long term, some, sometimes discarded. And so there's a lot of questions about how this might apply to that. Yeah, I guess how how might it apply to that? Then would I mean because you can't really control. Well, I guess you do. I guess you control how many embryos you make, but you you can't control how many are going to implant. And so it's not like you want to make less. And I don't can explain explain more about that. I'm like, my brain is, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. I'm not, I cannot. Um, reproductive endocrinology and infertility is a subset of training beyond regular OBGYN training. And, you know, certainly uh-huh. an, an REI doctor is an expert in that, but, you know, kind of the, the basics of IVF is that, you know, the ovaries are stimulated to make multiple eggs versus, you know, in a normal menstrual cycle, usually only one egg is released. Um, And then once the ovaries are stimulated, those eggs are retrieved and then fertilized outside of the body. That's the the in vitro part of in vitro fertilization. And um, after, you know, the egg is fertilized, that fertilized egg is then transferred back into the uterus. And, you know, infertility care is often excluded from insurance companies. It can be very, very expensive for IVF. You are talking thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you never know how many eggs you're going to get, how many of those eggs are going to fertilize, how many of those fertilized eggs will, will grow. And then once you do the transfer, will it implant normally or not? And it's, it's really a, a numbers game. Um, and so, you know, it is in theory possible to, you know, only try to fertilize one egg or only transfer one embryo um, and try to do it in a, a little bit more of a controlled fashion. But again, this is a very time consuming, expensive and emotional process for patients. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it is not uncommon for the goal to be to make more than one embryo. And so the question then becomes, you know, what does that mean for any excess embryos that are created? And I think that's a large concern in the infertility community. Yeah. It's super, it's super interesting to me because I, I do think that often gets left out of the IVF often gets left out of the conversation because it's really difficult to explain. And, and if the, the, like you said, the philosophical versus medical definition of pregnancy and and personhood, those may be different. Um, and so I, I think that part gets kind of left out of the conversation often and it, it kind of has to be part of it. If we're saying, you know, listen, we're concerned that new restrictive laws might actually affect that. I think it might affect people that don't even realize it's potentially going to be a problem for them. Um, so yeah. Um, gosh, any other additional concerns or anything you want to share with everybody? I really appreciate your, your time. So I'd like to just wrap up by saying that, you know, pregnancy related care can sometimes be really complicated. And, you know, when you find yourself pregnant, whether it's desired, undesired, normal, abnormal, you want to trust that you're able to make the healthcare decision that is the best fit for you and your family under the 
guidance of your physician or other health practitioner that you trust and you want to trust that no matter where you live, you're able to access the same kind of care. And what we're going to potentially see is that your your zip code and your means may now dictate what sort of pregnancy-related care you can receive. And I think we can all agree that that's not a very equitable equitable way for people to be able to access their care. And then finally, um, just to wrap things up, uh, the Supreme Court decision is not final. It is not in effect. So um, as of right now, abortion remains legal in all 50 states. So if you or someone you know needs an abortion, please remember that abortion is legal everywhere for now. And, um, you know, this is just the beginning of what is going to be some very large changes for or potentially large changes for pregnant people in this country. And hopefully, uh, as OBGYNs, we're able to help our patients navigate the care that they need. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. And guys, as always, if you liked the episode um, and found any of this information to be helpful, please rate, subscribe, share it. Um, We'll be continuing to talk about this and hopefully get the best information out that we can. And I'll see you next week.